Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, Northfield, actually, just a little bit north of the city there. And coming to you with another episode of our podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show, where we do all things Grateful Dead, all things cannabis. And we got a lot of good stuff on both sides of the coin today. We have a show from 38 years ago, February 12th, 1986, at the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland, California. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. This was a night when the Neville brothers were there and joined the boys. We have some uh, clips coming up in the show where they're all up on stage together, and it's really good. So let's dive right into, uh, uh, for us, the opening uh, opening song. This one was billed as the uh, Dead's annual Mardi Gras show. This one for 1986. Like I said, they have the Nevilles uh, who came out and played with them, and then the Nevilles did a whole uh, extra set all on their own. So, uh, by by standards, even for that period of time, it's it's a relatively short Grateful Dead show, only about seven songs in the first set. Uh, not a lot in the second set. Some of them are played really well. The Scarlet Fire I find to be rather uninspired, especially after listening to that great one from the Unidome at the University of Northern Iowa that we were listening to last week. Um, and uh, and then then after that, though, they had a whole set, another set by the Devil Brothers, and so the, the show wound up really running kind of late into the evening. Fun was had by all, and uh, I'm glad that you know we get to uh, jump on board with them and uh, do it. That sugary kicking off the... It's not kicking off the night. They came out and opened with Hell in a Bucket. But I feel like we've covered that song a lot lately. And we do cover Sugary a lot too. But when I'm going to compare the two, I'm going to pick Sugary over Hell in a Bucket any day. Sorry, Bobby, but that's just the way it is. Jerry comes out smoking on this crowd favorite, gets things cooking. Uh, after the Hell in a Bucket, uh, you can hear the crowd uh, really enjoying it and very appreciative. They love this song. Uh, my good buddy Mikey loves this song. And um, we always get out there and shake it uh, like sugary whenever we can, seeing the boys or any other good jam band music. Um, we've talked about this song before. It was released on Jerry's first solo album, Garcia, back in January 1972. Played 362 times. Even the band loved it a lot. First was on July 31st, 1971 at the Yale Bowl in New Haven, Connecticut. Six months before its release, before the Garcia album was released. And then last played on July 8th, 1995 
at Soldier Field in Chicago uh, in the final wind-down shows. Um, it's uh, you know always been one that we love. Uh, I thought it's just a little bit better to go with that one to start things off and uh, not disappointed in any way. Uh, any of these shows that we're featuring, I always say and recommend that you go to archives.org and, and just download the show and listen to the entire thing. Um, when I'm putting together these clips, it's always so hard. I drive Dan crazy because I keep slowly but surely extending them out from a minute to a minute and a quarter to a minute and a half, now sometimes almost two minutes. But when you're sitting there listening to it, 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 it would be criminal to cut off in the middle of a Jerry solo. You can't just say, done, right there. Um, and it's just as bad to try and pick up in the middle of it. And if you can't, we got to find a way to, to capsulize those things. But damn it, Jerry just played guitar for too long up there. And we had a great time in the crowd. But uh, we try hard. But this, this is a great sugary, really, the entire thing all the way through. Jerry's just rocking on it, as he is this entire show. Um, I'm sure he's uh, pumped up that it's... Um, both, uh, like we say, the, the um, Mardi Gras show and uh, early shows in the 1986 year. Now for Garcia, though, this is, of course is going to be a big year because it's just a few months later, uh, July, when Jerry goes into that diabetic coma and uh, we almost lost him. So uh, we feel, uh, you know, very lucky and uh, happy that we didn't lose him then. But at this point, you know, there was nothing that would necessarily say to you uh, that he's going down that road. He's out there kicking it hard and sounds really, really good. Now, I do want to talk about the Kaiser Convention Center for a little bit. I never got to see a show there. Um, it is a historic, publicly owned, multi-purpose building near uh, Oakland, California. Uh, it has a 5,492-seat arena, a large theater and a large ballroom. The building is number 27 on the list of Oakland Historic Landmarks and was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 2021. It's located at 10 10th Street in the Civic Center District of the city, next to the Oakland Museum, Laney College, Lake Merritt, and the Lake Merritt BART Station, for those of you who are public transportation inclined. Uh, the Bow-style building was built in 1914. The architect was John J. Donovan. Structural engineer was Maurice Crouchet, originally known as the Oakland Civic Auditorium. It was renamed in honor of Henry J. Kaiser after a 1984 renovation. The city closed the facility in 2006, and its future was uncertain for a decade. In 2006, Oakland voters defeated a ballot pr proposition advocating a library space in the building. Uh, the city was owned by the, the building was owned by the city until 2011. It was sold to a local redevelopment agency for 28 million. However, the development agency was dissolved by the state of California, so ownership reverted back to the city. In 2015, a local developer, Orton Development, stepped in. Uh, to turn it into commercial space with the Calvin Simmons Theater being renovated as a performing arts venue. It's also supposed to be registered again as a National Historic Landmark. A uh, little bit of history on the building in the 50s and 60s. The roller derby played there hundreds of times. Elvis Presley had two uh, performances at the convention center there on June 3rd, 1956, and just about a year later, on October 27th, 1957. On December 28, 1962, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to an audience of 7,000 at the auditorium. Remember, its uh, capacity is 5,240 or so. Uh, that was to mark the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Ike and Tina Turner performed at the Oakland Auditorium on January 13, 1967. And from 1967 through 1989, the Grateful Dead performed at the Convention Center 57 times. The first 23 concerts at the Convention Center were billed at Oakland Auditorium. And later, starting in 1995, the venue changed to Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center. 
uh, in the 1980s, uh, the band started performing runs of shows over the course of three to seven days. So uh, they would go out there and have a whole Henry J. Kaiser Theater run. Unfortunately, I never got to see them there, as I say, uh, but lots of good friends who did. Of course, Alex was there, Andy was there, uh, my good friend one R. Larry was there. Um, all those guys, you know, they were all living out there at the time. And, uh, you know, that you're either on the bus or you're not. And although I kind of fell on the bus in Chicago, I uh, was really only on the bus when the bus, when the bus pulled into town. Uh, unless we were willing to get on an airplane and fly out to join the bus somewhere else. And sometimes it was feasible, sometimes not so much. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Kaiser was one venue uh, that I never got in on. And, you know, who knows, maybe someday... Uh, somebody will venture back that way and we'll sneak in and catch a little live music there. Um, but this is a really fun show. There's a lot of diversity in it. Uh, you'll hear more about that when we get to the Nevilles in a few minutes. Um, but let's roll into uh, the next clip we have for this show. This is a Brent tune. correct myself when I say a Brent song at the time. This was a new Brent song. Um, it was released on the album In the Dark in 1987, and even though Brent had been playing it since 1984, uh, it was still a tune that when you heard it, it was like, oh yeah, that's that, uh, that song from Brent. Now, right around this time and going forward with the tune, one of the things that I think really made it so good was this harmonizing from Phil that we heard. Uh, she wasn't built to travel at the speed of rumor flies. These wheels are bound to jump the tracks before they burn the ties. But Phil's right up there at the microphone, belting it out with him. And, you know, there's a lot of good energy behind that. And they're doing a little bit of harmonizing behind it. And Bobby probably uh, joins in a little bit there, too. Um, you know, and, and they really, really get it going. The crowd loves it. Any excuse to hear Phil sing. And this is just about a month before the Hampton show where Phil broke out Box of Rain. And, you know, the Deadheads just could not get enough of him stepping up to the mic it's really kind of funny because you know nowadays when we talk about going to see phil lesh and friends it's always like oh good who who do they have that's going to be singing so we so we don't have to hear phil sing but you know we love him and he does it great on this one he and brent just sound really really good together it's a great connection uh bobby or jerry did a lot of things with brent bobby too but nice to see phil get in there uh and get involved with it so um david dodd who we've talked about from time to time 
uh, who writes often on the Grateful Dead. Uh, he said that Brent wrote the words and music for Tons of Steel, first performed on December 28, 1984 at the Civic Auditorium in San Francisco. The other first in that show was Day Tripper. I was there. Uh, FYI, I was there too with my good buddy Rick uh, from uh, Michigan. We went out there for our first New Year's shows, and this was one of the early shows in the New Year's run. And uh, we did hear tons of steel. We didn't realize it was a first-timer, but it was a great tune anyway. And definitely heard Day Tripper, which had been being rumored for about six months that they were going to play it. And they finally did. And even before the New Year's Eve show itself, you know, Rick and I both looked at each other, and we were like, yeah, this is this is cool. This, this really reaffirms we made the right decision to come out here because we're catching these great tunes already that are firsts and or at least... Uh, um, you know, just just being there to hear all of that and uh, Day Tripper was just very, very cool. We had a great time. The New Year's show was great, but I digress. Uh, and then this this also rings true with me when uh, he writes, it sounded, the song sounded like a hit to me, but then I was completely disconnected from whatever it was that passed for hit making in the 1980s. And uh, yeah, I, I maybe was falling out of, you know, uh, the more common stream of music because I was falling so deeply in to Grateful Dead music. But even at that time in 84, we always appreciated a good effort by Brent. And though I never uh, saw them early enough to catch Keith, like my good buddy Jim Marty did, um, but I did, uh, you know, get to know Brent and everything. And it was just great to see him, you know, push out uh, his identity in the band a little bit more all the time. And this was a great song for him to do it with. Dodd continues, it was performed fairly regularly throughout 90, uh, through 85, through September of uh, 1987, making its last appearance on September 23rd at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Dodd says that seems odd to me because it was dropped from rotation just a little more than two months after it was released on In the Dark in July, wondering why. So it's a song about a train, one of the prime motifs of Grateful Dead lyrics. He asks quick, name five Grateful Dead songs with trains, no peaking. And then I'll pause for a second for those of you that want to see if you can come up with it yourselves. Four, three, two, one. What do trains evoke in the dead's lyrics? Everything from danger, caution, uh, do not step on the tracks, and Casey Jones, to adventure, Jack Straw, to love, they love each other, to farewell, he's gone. To whatever that thing is that we feel when Garcia thinks about wishing he was a headlight and take a look back at the cover of his album Reflections sometimes. All very good points by Mr. Dodd. That's why we read him and talk about him and always happy to share uh, his ideas on this stuff. Uh, the Dead, as it turns out, only played the song 29 times, um, you know, over basically a, uh, a three-year period, uh, although it's felt like I thought they would have played it more, but I definitely caught it a few times, and we already heard that the first was on December 28th, 84, at the San Francisco Civic Auditorium on the New Year's run, and that the last was September 23rd, 87, at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, it's always fun to be there when uh, the dead are playing newer tunes or, uh, you know, tunes that just don't get a lot of airplay, and um, that was certainly a good example. And uh, it's on some of their... Uh, uh, some of the, the albums that have been re uh, shows that have been released on Dick's picks and Dave's picks and um, some of the uh, I don't think I don't know if it's on any of the in the vaults um, but you know you can go and find it on uh, archive.org as well and I just think it's a fun song you can always catch that part with with Phil and um, Brent harmonizing and you know really really getting the crowd on its feet and uh, you know Jerry has fun with it and I guess once you get Jerry in that's just a good thing altogether. Now, I'm going to switch over to music for a minute. 
because we've got some good music stuff today. We got some great marijuana stuff today, but we got some really good music stuff today to talk about. This first one sounds almost completely implausible uh, until you hear uh, the gist of the story and understand what they're talking about. And that is that uh, this is, was in Relics recently. Thank you to Relics. Grateful Dead break record for most top 40 albums on the Billboard 200. Like, no, no freaking way, right? That This cannot be true. They really only had one, maybe two albums that were even close to being considered commercial successes, right? In the dark and then built to last. Um, you know, maybe the earlier ones kicked around American Beauty, maybe Working Men's. But, I mean, those were not selling like Taylor Swift albums, let's be honest here. These, you know, these were, um, you know, good. They, they were not known as a studio band. They were not known, uh, you know, necessarily for the albums they put out, even though I... Again, would argue that a lot of them are very good albums, but they were known for being a live band. But when you hear the story, let's listen to this for a minute. The Grateful Dead have broken the record for the most Billboard Top 40 albums ever, and by any other music group, after Dave's Picks Volume 49 debuted at number 25 on this week's Billboard 200, ultimately serving as the band's 59th album to make the record charts. The achieved status further assists in bolstering San Francisco jam band's beloved discography, an intricate web of community that has spun into a cultural phenomenon. So understand what they're saying there, right? That it's the 59th album to make the charts, but it's the 25th uh, on the Billboard 200 altogether. And, um, you know, the band didn't have 59 albums, right? But then we go on, the procurement arrived after Dave's Picks Volume 48 tied the band with Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley chart records in the fall, establishing the interwound legacy between Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzmann, Mickey Hart, and their following steeped in a 60-year triumph as music industry tastemakers. Dave's Picks 49 presents a pair of Grateful Dead hometown shows, both of which took place back-to-back uh, at Stanford University's Frost Amphitheater on April 27th and 28th, 1985, Re-establishing their status as a Bay Area institution some 20 years into their Grateful Dead run, uh, Grateful Dead legacy manager and audio archivist David Lemieux uh, curated the music set. We're going to actually talk about uh, that new Dick's Picks, uh, Dave's Picks release coming up uh, in a couple of months when we get to the end of April. Um, so uh, now we hear from Lemieux, this could be the most unlikely and unexpected record in music history and is a testament to a few things offered Lemieux in his press release. First and foremost is the exceptional and consistent quality of the Grateful Dead's more than 2,000 live shows. On the heels of this is the loyalty and passion of the many deadheads who have made the record uh, this record possible. And to top it off, the Grateful Dead have a partnership with Rhino Music that ensures these many albums uh, releases are produced with care, love, and respect from both the band's music and legacy and the Deadheads themselves. It's an honor and privilege to work for this community, and our aim is to keep building on this record by delivering the quality recording the Deadheads have come to uh, expect for many years, he said. Mark Pincus, president of Rhino Records, remarked, it's truly remarkable to witness the Grateful Dead's enduring legacy and profound impact impact. Their music and culture transcend time and this groundbreaking achievement is testament to their ongoing influence. Rhino is honored to continue to share uh, their meaningful and magical music with Deadheads, both old and new. And then they point out that Dave's Picks 50 coming out in May from uh, the Grateful Dead's uh, May 3rd, 1977 stand at the New York Palladium. Uh, and uh, that's another great show, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that when we get there. But what we're really talking about here 
are the live albums that they're releasing, right? So all the Dave's picks, all the Dick's picks, not all of them, but enough of them are making it uh, into uh, the Billboard Top 100 uh, that even though they, you know, they don't have the albums to necessarily put them there, they have the, the body of music there. You know, they're tied with Frank Sinatra, for God's sakes, Elvis Presley. These guys were chart toppers year after year after year. The Grateful Dead, you know, got... Uh, touch of gray up there but you know other than that it wasn't like you know we were kind of not like the rolling stones not like the beatles not like the who not like these bands would have these huge hits that would come out and you know everybody would love them and listen to them and you know the dad had their big hits mostly for their fans and other stuff like that but i just think that that's great and and you know so reflective of the fact that you know at the end of the day the music of the grateful dead really just speaks to so many people and especially their live music. I don't think it's an accident that this is the live albums uh, driving that level of sales because people are now, you know, have, have come to learn and appreciate the fact that you can put on a dead show from wherever. You don't have to know the words. You don't have to know the songs. If you listen to it enough times, over time you'll get used to it and you'll develop a familiarity with it like you would any other music. And if it's enough to make you expand out into other live recordings that they've released or going on to archive.orgs and listening to just about any show they've ever done, then great, you know, dive into it like that. Call up the podcast and get on and we'll talk to you about what you like. But um, this is this is just uh, um, so much fun and such a great thing. And, and of course, I'm the sucker that buys it all, but that's okay because I love having it and you know, reading it, all the stuff they have in there. And uh, that's why, you know, I develop a lot of these, you know, little little known arcane facts that really nobody outside of maybe a couple of people listening to this podcast even care about, which I understand. So I try to keep it to a minimum, uh, but uh, you can't always help it. Now, let's turn our attention to a minute to another hot jam band out there at the moment who we've talked about on this show, and that is Goose. What's going on with Goose, you say? Well, Goose is now big enough that as they are changing drummers... It is making the big time news. Everybody wants to know about what's going on with Goose and Relics is at the pulse of that too. So back in December, um, we heard about the fact that uh, the, the indie jam band Goose uh, was announcing a departure of its band member uh, on the Friday before Christmas. Uh, they're parting ways with longtime drummer and co-founder Ben Atkind. In their statement, Goose's Rick Mitterotanda, Peter Anspach, Trevor Weeks, and Jeff Arvalo, Arvalo appear to chalk Atkins' departure up to tensions between the fundamental and creative differences, adding, we've come to a place where we feel our current path to be unsustainable long-term. The band continued. Looking at the larger scope of our lives, we feel in our hearts that making this change is ultimately in the best interest of everyone's well-being. Change is often very painful and scary, but unavoidable part of life. The band and everyone involved in it means the world to us, and there is no aspect of this decision we take lightly. We all love Ben very much and want nothing but the best for him. He is a world-class drummer, and we can't wait to watch and support his future endeavors. Atkin, in his own statement, announced his departure with a heavy heart and a deep sense of gratitude saying how lucky he was to be part of the band as it went from a local Connecticut favorite to one of the biggest jam bands in the country. Atkin has played on the band's three studio albums, 2016 Moon's Moon Cabin, 2021's Shenanigans Nightclub, and 2020's Two Dripfield, not to mention the hundreds of live shows and recordings Goose have shared over the past years. Conceiving a dream isn't easy, and I realize how lucky I am to have been a part of it from the very beginning until where Goose is now, Atkin said. Oops, excuse me. Long-term create, creative camaraderie demands a personal evaluation. It demands consistent communication, mutual empathy, and a willingness to compromise. Even though this is something we tried, these elements fell out of 
sink, which is where we find ourselves today. I will be forever grateful for my time with my bandmates and wish them the best as we prepare to go our separate ways. All very nice. Everybody has, you know, nothing but nice things to say. Um, you know, that's the smart move you make in this industry. Um, you know, can't help you make you think of Pete Best getting bounced out of the Beatles at the last minute for Ringo Starr uh, or whoever the drummer was for The Who before Keith Moon bounced up on stage one night and threw that guy off and said, I'm your drummer uh, or anything like that. But that begs the question, right? Who is Goose's new drummer going to be? And after a long, long wait, which is not really so long if you're just finding about all of this right now, I have the answer. Once again, thank you to Relics. Uh, Goose has announced that Vermont-based drummer Cotter Ellis has been officially selected to fill the band's empty seat. Cotter is familiar face to Burlington, Vermont concert goers, known for his work with Zach Nugent's Dead Set and several other jam cover outfits that have taken the stage at Nectar's. Fortunately for fans eager to hear the new drummer, sit in with the quartet, this news is complemented by the revela revelation of a new full-length project to be released uh, very soon and Ellis's 30-minute audition tape with the band which is available on YouTube now. And if you go to Relics and download this article from February 5th, they have a link that'll take you right there. In this surprise release, group, uh, Goose disclosed that the group first caught a performance from Ellis over five years ago and instantly recognized his pocket prowess and unique sound. Ted Tapes 2024, the song cycle that they're set to release, introduces the new combination style in the format set forth by Ted Tapes 2021. Whereas the former project was composed solely of rehearsals and sound checks, Goose's upcoming offering features nine improvisational tracks selected from the band's first seasons with Ellis. The result is Goose at its rawest and most experimental, exploring new harmonies and sonic paths forward from its point of transition unselfconsciously as the recordings were not originally intended for release. Detailing the new project, Goose writes the first track. Leo's on the opening pickup jam for the first session, the first notes ever played together. There are some consistent threads we all felt in the room throughout these early sessions, ease of communication, freely flowing ideas, and a feeling of effortlessness moving through different zones. We experienced a patience that allowed all of our personalities to come out and energy to well up in new ways. The new energy was heard on teases posted on Goose's social channels last weekend, bringing anticipation to a head for an already restless following so yep if you're very excited about uh, what's going on with goose check out ted tapes 2024 uh, i will do my best to listen to them and maybe talk about them on a future episode look for fish or excuse me goose when they come to your house now uh with Cotterella sitting in uh doing the drumming and um i can't say that i'm familiar with the guy but i did check out that clip that they have of his audition tape and uh, he certainly seems uh, you know very qualified and talented as far as I'm concerned better than anything I could do so yeah check him out Goose has been great and there's no reason they won't just uh, continue rocking along speaking of rocking along we are going to go back to our show from uh, 38 years ago today at the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center now that we all know a little bit more about it and we're going to lock right into our very next tune a Bobby number Let it go, 
Cassidy is a song written by John Barlow and Bob Weir. Uh, it appeared on Bob Weir's Ace album and uh, The Grateful Dead's Reckoning and also their stu- studio produced, they're all studio produced, but this one was just pulling in um, a bunch of different live uh, songs from different concerts uh, without a net album, although when it came out we all loved it, especially because on that album they previewed for everyone who hadn't gotten to hear it live uh, that Eyes of the World with Branford Marsalis from 1989 up in um, 89 or 90, 89, I think I can't remember, but everybody knows what it is, uh, up in uh, Nassau County Coliseum <clears throat> that became uh, just such a hit and so amazing and <clears throat> left all the deadheads saying, why don't they have a saxophonist in this band? The song was named after Cassidy Law. There's been a little bit of speculation about this, who was born in 1970, the daughter of Grateful Dead crew member Rex Jackson and Bob Weir's former housemate and uh, longtime uh a uh, person in the Grateful Dead business office, Eileen Law. The lyrics allude to also Neil Cassidy, hence the confusion, although it's spelled C-A-S-S-I-D-Y, and Neil Cassidy um, is C-A-S-S-A-D-Y, um, who was associated with the Beats in the 1950s and the acid test scene that spawned the Grateful Dead in the 1960s. Some of the lyrics in the song were also inspired by the death of uh, lyricist John Barlow's father. So, yeah, you know, there was a lot of times we hear the song, even the clip we hear, Lost Now in the Country Miles in His Cadillac. And Neil Cassidy was nothing if not a, um, a very uh, prodigious uh, purveyor of, or not, not purveyor, uh, driver of automobiles. And uh, he's famous for having driven the, uh, the uh, Mary Prankster's further bus cross country from uh, Berkeley and uh, uh, that part of the world um, up to. Uh, New York to visit, or really Boston, I guess, to visit Timothy Leary and his crowd at Boston. So they kind of had the meeting of the West Coast and East Coast psychedelic minds all laid out in the electric Kool-Aid acid test by Tom Wolfe, which touches on so much of this stuff that we're talking about, but really presents it in a way that speaks to it at the time, both in terms of, you know, the fact that it happened and putting it in perspective of what it meant to that generation and to, you know, our generations, which came later and still, you know, feed very heavily off of all the stuff that went down at that time. And we've talked about how, uh, you know, everything that went down in the summer of love and in the late 60s and early 70s on the West Coast and spawned the whole psychedelic rock movement and stuff as well. You know, now, you know, pushing on 60 years old and and more. And, and you know, really that's enough for at least two generations to have uh, gone through their experimental musical years. And yet this type of music, whether it's by the Grateful Dead or Fish or Goose or Widespread Panic or uh, anybody out there who's who's doing it. J-Rad, who, by the way, uh, just played a hot show in Atlanta last week, I hear. My son got to go see that with a couple of his buds who came in see the beautiful granddaughter Ruby and uh, got rave reviews about it as always so uh, once again you know you got J-Red 
there's just so many bands out there uh, that are constantly uh, continuing to play with this spirit and this style of music and this uh, expansive reach that just welcomes in so many different people from so many different backgrounds. And, you know, it's fair to say that the dead were really uh, the pioneers of the movements, first as part of a larger group of musicians that were, and then almost by default by being the longest surviving ones of those original groups and, and really shepherding it into the mainstream. Um, you know, we all laughed through Touch of Grey, but however it happened, it happened. Um, so that more and more people began to accept that type of music and it just spills over into this this new era of, of really great and exciting jam bands uh, who are playing out there. So uh, John Barlow also called it one of his favorite songs. It's a great sing-along. Um, I like this version because as they play through it, it gets nice and trippy. I always found Cassie to be a good song for helping define the mood of the show. Uh, it would usually show up about mid to late first set uh, just overall a very fine tune, uh, a lot of fun, played 339 times. First was on March 23, 1974 at the Cow Palace in Daly City, uh, which is just outside of San Francisco. The Dead played a great New Year's show there. Uh, the Rolling Stones played a great show there in the mid-1960s. It was attended by the Merry Pranksters, and it's all written up again in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, so please go read that book. Cassidy was played for the last time by the Grateful Dead on July 6, 1995 at the Riverport Amphitheater. Maryland Heights, Missouri, just outside of St. Louis, a show that I was lucky enough to attend. Now we're going to jump into the next song, and a couple of things about this song. It's a, it's a rarity, it's a first time played, and uh, you got the Neville Brothers up there spiking it with the Grateful Dead. Jive, just another that it was played was the Nevels, and you can hear them up there. And what a great mashup of the Grateful Dead and the Nevels just rocking out on this tune of all of them. Uh, Phil is not on the stage for that tune. For some reason, uh, he stepped off for a minute. He returns for the balance of the show. Uh, but they make a point in the song listings of giving this a double asterisk, meaning not just with the Nevels, uh, but without Phil on stage. Now, what about Willie and the Hand Jive? It's a song you know a lot of people have heard, but don't, maybe don't always know a lot about. It was written by Johnny Otis and originally released as a single in 1958 by Otis. Uh, reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, number five on the Billboard uh, R&B chart. 
The song has a Bo Diddley beat and was partly inspired by the music sung by a chain gang Otis heard while he was touring. <clears throat> the lyrics are about a man who became famous for doing a dance with his hands, but the song has been accused of glorifying masturbation, though Otis always denied it. It has since been covered by numerous artists, including the Crickets, the Strangeloves, Elvis, uh, excuse me, Eric Clapton, Cliff Richard, Kim Carnes, George Thorogood, uh, the Bunch, and in live performances by The Grateful Dead, among others. Uh, Clapton's 1974 version was released as a single and reached the Billboard 100, peaking at number 28. Uh, Thorogood's 1985 version reached number 25 on the Billboard Rock and Track charts. George Thorogood there, uh, another great musician, a lot of fun. The lyrics tell of a man named Willie who became famous for doing a hand jive dance. In a sense, the story is similar to that of Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good, which tells of someone who became famous for playing the guitar uh, and was released two months before Willie and the hand jive. The origin of the song came when... Uh, one of Otis's managers, Hal Ziegler, found out that rock and roll concert venues in England did not permit the teenagers to stand up and dance in the aisles. So instead, they danced with their hands while sit remaining in their seats. At Otis's concert, performers would demonstrate Willie's hand jive uh, to the audience so the audience could dance while listening uh, and still remaining in their seats. It consisted of clapping two fists together, one on top of the other, followed by ruling the same arms around each other. Otis label Capitol Records also provided diagrams showing how to do it uh, for uh, people who were coming to the shows. Uh, Eric Clapton recorded it for his 1974 album, 451, 461 Ocean Boulevard. Clapton slowed down the tempo for his version. Author Chris Welsh believes that the song benefits from this slow burn. Uh, Billboard described it as a monster, powerful cut that retains elements from Clapton's previous single, I Shot the Sheriff. Uh, Record World said that Clapton slow boogies the song into a, a laid-back magnificence. George Thorogood recorded a version of it for his 1985 album with the Destroyers Mavericks. His single version charted on the hot mainstream rock chart, uh, tracks charts, peaking at number 25 and reached number 63 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, all music, uh, music credit Christopher Ma Monger called the song one of Thorogood's high points. Other artists who have covered the song include Johnny Rivers, New Riders of the Purple, Purple Sage, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Sandy Nelson, uh, the Tremolos, uh, Amos Garrett, Ducks Deluxe, Levon Helm, Les Michael, and of course, as you know, The Grateful Dead. Uh, this was, in fact, the first time uh, the band ever played it. Um, they only played it a total of six times, almost all in 1986 and then one in 87. And their last performance was a, of the song April 4th, 1987 at the Centrum in Worcester, Mass. Um, now, that's not a lot of times and that's unfortunate, but I think it was probably one of those tunes that they were playing that always sounded and felt a lot better when they had... Um, uh, uh, you know, somebody like the Almonds up there playing with them and, and doing that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I, I can take uh, some understanding in that. But uh, what a great song if you were there and you got to hear it. Uh, unfortunately, I was never in that lucky crowd. And so, um, but now, now we can. And, and this particular version of it, uh, again, it's just great. I love the music. They're all playing with each other and filling in holes and, and, you know, boosting here and boosting there. There's a little bit of harmonica. There's a little bit of everything going on in this song. Um, and, you know, just some, some great fun uh, between two bands that really shared a lot uh, in terms of their love of New Orleans and Creole-type rock and roll and partying and having a good time and playing late into the night and getting people to dance all, all worked up and everything. So uh, really, really a lot of fun. 
Now we are at that point in the show where we are going to uh, ask our good friend Dan here to um, lead us in to the uh, rock and roll, uh, excuse me, into the marijuana portion of our show. Think Thank you, Dan. As always, we are just got to hear a little bit of Neil Young uh, singing his song, Let's Roll Another Number for the Road. Uh, this is off of his album, Tonight's the Night, from, I believe, around uh, 1975. Um, you know, the song is from you know, what the critics called Neil Young's Grief Racked Album. It's a kind of goodbye and good riddance to Woodstock Nation and all that it symbolized. Neil Young played at Woodstock with Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young but he was distanced from the hippie culture by the dual deaths of Crazy Horse guitarist Danny Witten and Young's friend and roadie, Ruth Berry, both from heroin overdoses. Those Young is in the same category as Frank Zappa. Both were idolized by the hippie culture while kind of more or less openly loathing it. So, you know, it's um, uh, he, he does definitely make a little uh, reference to uh, marijuana here, as we all hear, and, you know, that's okay. Uh, we love Neil. He loved it the way he does it his way, and uh, it's just always fun to have good stuff like that to share. So let's dive into our marijuana talk of the day because, boy, do we've got a lot of stuff here. Um, <clears throat> and it's all the kind of stuff I love to talk about. We're going to dive into the first two because they play, I think, a big role uh, and what's going on in the second two. Uh, first one is very basic. Thank you to Marijuana Moment. Uh, marijuana use alone is not associated with higher odds of car accidents, according to a new study by researchers who looked at drivers who visited emergency departments. In fact, high self-reported acute cannabis use was actually associated with the lower odds of a crash. Alcohol, meanwhile, whether used by itself or combined with marijuana, showed a clear correlation with the greater odds of a collision. To arrive at the results, researchers gathered data from emergency room departments in Denver, Colorado, Portland, Oregon, and Sacramento, California. They obtained driver's blood and measured for THC and metabolites, recorded alcohol levels as measured by a breathalyzer in the course of clinical care, and conducted interviews with the drivers. So we can just stop right there. These folks are doing it right. They're not just saying, oh, look, there's cannabis in his system. That means he was high. They're saying, we have to check the metabolites. We talked about this last week again. It's a way that we can now tell not just if THC is present, but whether or not it's in an active psychoactive mode such that the person uh, in whom we find it uh, is, is acting in a, uh, um, you know, is acting high, is acting in a manner that, you know, we would see as uh, dangerous or uh, um certainly not productive if you're at work or, or, or whatever the case may be. But so this, this is a legit study. They are doing this on the right elements in terms of uh, what we're looking at. Now, while most legalization advocates do not dispute that marijuana can impair a driver's ability to safely operate a car, like we've always said on this show, new study found that the mere use of cannabis did not correlate to a higher rate of uh, motor vehicle collisions. Cannabis alone was not associated and, and that's just the way it is. Strikingly, drivers who use marijuana were actually less likely to crash, according to the researchers' analysis. Also another truth that we've been talking about for a long time. Stratifying by level of self-reported or measured cannabis use, highway level, higher levels were not associated with higher odds for uh, motor vehicle collisions, with or without co-use of alcohol, they wrote. In fact, 
high self-reported acute cannabis use was associated with lower odds of a uh, vehicle collision. Uh, in light of the results, the nine-author research team concluded the THC levels are a less than reliable indicator of driving risk, suggesting that a better test would be to measure actual impairment. Alcohol use alone or in conjunction with cannabis was consistently associated with higher odds uh, for motor vehicle collision. However, the relationship between measured levels of cannabis and those collisions was not as clear. Emphasis on actual driving behaviors and clinical signs of intoxication to determine driving under the influence has the strongest rationale. Now, this study just goes on and on. The authors published in the April 2024 issue of the journal Accident Analysis and Prevention, represented by a range of institutions, including Oregon Health and Science University, the University of Colorado School of Medicine, University of California Davis, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, which also was a funder of the study, Portland State University, and others. As more states have considered legal marijuana in recent years, many have expressed concerns that the policy change could lead to higher rates of use by drivers and in turn, greater risk to public safety. But research shows the relationship between cannabis use and impaired driving isn't as simple as it might seem. A fact we have talked about on this show over and over and over, uh, a fact that Paul Armentano and Mason Tavert and Steve Fox were talking about a long time ago um, and something that people even now continue to, to scoff at and say, that's just not true. You know, if anything has changed. No, it's not. These are studies that are actually being done. They're supporting this. I'm not making this up. I'm not sitting down at my computer and typing up a bunch of stuff and making up names. Anyone can go on marijuanamoment.net or .org or whatever it is, and you can find these articles. They exist. They are there. You can go to Benzinga, one of my other articles from the New York Times. This stuff is really happening, folks. The, the misinformation that's being fed to us as a society is overwhelming. And in this marijuana, it's very clear, right? The, the people who say, well, we're not so sure that it should even be descheduled because we still think that it's harmful and dangerous and blah, blah, blah. These people don't know what they're talking about. They are walking reefer madness people. And to suggest otherwise on their end is purely nonsense and has no basis in fact because they constantly push these false narratives. This is studies being done, universities, the federal agencies. You can believe them or don't, but if you know if you don't want to believe it, then try and come up with studies yourself that make sense. But otherwise when people say this, please don't laugh in their face. Please say, you're absolutely right. This is why I would rather have my kids smoke marijuana than drink alcohol. I don't want them to do either one in their formative years, but if they're going to do one, and we all did, so who's to say they won't too or didn't? Marijuana is always going to be preferable. It's safer on so many levels, right? No, we're not saying that it's okay to drive high. Don't try to misinterpret this position. Anyone who's a, a prohibitionist, who, you know, uh, Dalthwaite, Ross, whatever your name is, right? That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is... That in a choice between the two substances, marijuana is the safer choice and will result in safer driving. And this study, not me, suggests that it may just be true overall, that perhaps we're going to find out that smoking marijuana calms a person down, makes them a little more cautious, and does result in fewer traffic accidents all around. So it's out there. You can like it. You can disagree with it. But it's just a simple fact. Uh, this next one uh, is even better. This is medical science now telling us not just about the things um, you know we can do here and here, but guess what? Marijuana extract can kill melanoma cells. New study reveals possible treatment for skin cancer. Okay, so this is an easier one to look at because now we're not saying oh something uh, that the prohibitionists fear like 
uh, being you know, driving while stoned, this is talking about the positive impacts, the health benefits that marijuana and THC can bring to everybody where you don't have to get high, you don't have to do that. But a new study indicates that cannabis has the potential to treat melanoma, a skin cancer beginning in the melanocyte cells, which makes the pigment that gives skin its color. Melanoma typically results from overexposure to the sun. While skin cancer is one of the most common cancers in the United States, melanoma accounts for only about 1%, yet it causes a large majority of skin cancer deaths, according to the American Cancer Society. New research published in a peer-reviewed cell journal conducted by scientists from Charles Darwin University and RMIT University offers hope for the creation of natural treatment for melanoma. The study, part of a PhD project by RMIT's Dr. Ava Bakari, showed that a specific cannabis extract, FEX, P-H-E-X-66, from the cannabis sativa plant, binds to receptor types on sites on particular melanoma cells, controlling the growth of the melanoma cells at two key phases and increasing the amount of damage to those melanoma cells. Uh, another doctor, uh, Nazim Nassar, the study co-author and CDU pharmaceutical lecturer said, this damage practically tricks the melanoma cells into killing themselves. This inhibitory effect rises from interactions with CB1 and CB2 receptors. The damage to the melanoma cells prevents it from dividing into new cells and instead begin a program cell death known as apoptosis, Dr. Nasser said. This is a growing area of important research because we need to understand cannabis, cannabis extracts as much as possible, especially their potential to function as anti-cancer agents. If we know how they react to cancer cells, particularly the cause of cell death, we can refine treatment techniques to be more specific, responsive, and effective. This is solid, man. This is like, this is positive stuff. You know, nobody's saying that you can go out and drink alcohol and it's going to help cure cancer. Nobody's saying that smoking cigarettes is going to help you or drinking lots of coffee and can't caffeine. But we're talking about a naturally occurring herb, a naturally occurring substance that's really being put to its paces. And yes, well, maybe what we'll find is, you know, uh, overall, only a very small percentage of its, of, of, of its value to society is the fact that people use it for relaxation purposes and that we're just going to continue to find more and more ways that it can help people uh, with all sorts of serious illnesses. But this is not new. I was going to conferences in, in 2013 and 2014 when doctors were presenting that they would find people with melanoma and they would take uh, their their THC oil that they had gotten and make it into like a uh, an ointment and rub it on there and then wrap it up in like saran wrap. And then they'd unwrap it two weeks later and they would find that the melanoma literally, literally just fell off the arm, just was disconnected from the arm. It went in and killed the cells that was holding the melanoma on, killed it out, and the melanoma was gone. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen in every case, but even if it happens in one case out of a thousand, that's still enough to say, hey, there's something here. This is something we have to follow up on because we can be saving lives. But we can only be saving lives if society as a whole kind of mellows out and as my kids would say, take a chill pill and let just accept the fact that marijuana has benefits, man, marijuana has good sides, and that let's stop hassling the people who enjoy it. Let's stop hassling the people that want to research it and really see for once in our lives where this can, this can really take us as a society.
But let me tell you, here's something more. Now numerous cancer studies have confirmed cannabis potential as a treatment for various types of cancer, including Israeli research of a cell model study showing that its integrative colon products killed over 90% of colon cancer cells. Previously, a 2021 study revealed a six-fold improvement in killing breast cancer cells when using medical cannabis products in combination with standard oncology treatments. Folks, we're going to find out that marijuana is going to do things that's going to make us all live a lot longer. Um, you know, and the doubters can doubt and the skeptics can be skeptical. Um, but if it's coming out of Israel, it's kind of gold standard, I think, on the medical scale. And this is nothing political about what's going on over there right now. This is just a simple fact. Many people who go in for complicated surgeries of all kinds are saved by technology that was first developed in Israel. It's one of the leaders in the world in this area. And we've talked long and often about Raphael Meshulam, uh, the Israeli researcher, who is really the grandfather of all the knowledge we have on THC and CBD and cannabis in general, going back to the late 1950s. Uh, really groundbreaking research that that, that where he saw the potential for, for, for these cannabinoids decades before anybody would even consider the possibility of looking in that direction. And he's basically been born out to be a guy who knew what the hell he was talking about and too bad for the rest of the world if they didn't really listen and pay attention. Um, but this is big, and, and I'm just so excited uh, that as we go forward, more and more opportunities uh, for people to prolong their lives, I hope, are going to be uh, resulting from the continued studies that people will do now as, as the, uh, the ridiculously over, overreactive rules that, that prevented people from doing any research on marijuana have been relaxed to the point where these types of studies can be conducted, and more importantly, uh, their findings and, and research information shared uh, with other people. So that's just a great thing all the way around. So that's, that's that's, that's two pluses on the uh, marijuana side today. Now, why is this important? This is important because marijuana is probably the most frequent of any type of drug that's out there that the public sees and deals with, you know, in part because of obviously the adult use. But even before that, of any of the drugs out there, heroin, cocaine, LSD, marijuana is certainly the one that you're more likely to encounter uh, in the public domain. People doing one hits, people smoking a joint at a concert, you know, whatever it might be. Not to say that people don't do those other drugs, but really they do marijuana. And so the fact that marijuana cannot get a positive image uh, with the public at large, um, you know, and, and still we go through all of this um, craziness where legislators think they know more about cannabis than anybody and are, you know, are out to save our, our good health because, of course, every good Bible-fearing person in this country should automatically recognize that marijuana is a bad thing and we don't need anybody to tell us otherwise. And besides, we don't like the way it smells. You know, and I just say those people have to be drowned out because they're missing out on the message. They're missing out on the message about uh, driving and, and auto accidents. Um, they're missing out on the uh, part about where it's starting to save lives. They're missing out on all of that. They're so eager in their desire to continue to play into the, the, the myth and, and the, the false image of the dangers of marijuana, uh, public benefits be damned, that they just go forward with it. Now, we've seen this playing out on a much larger stage. And I start with marijuana because when we move out to Oregon, uh, we have to understand that the, the law that they passed uh, back in February of 2021 decriminalized possession of small amounts of basically all drugs, meaning that uh, you were, you know, if you were found with, um, and I don't know the exact numbers, but let's just say under a gram of cocaine or whatever the dosage measurements would be for heroin or um, uh, LSD or any of these other drugs that like with marijuana now that uh, it would be a uh, basically a citation 
it's decriminalized, nobody's going to jail for it. And the idea was instead we would try to, uh, you know, divert these people into treatment and substance abuse centers and uh, see that how we could uh, uh, improve people's lives by treating them instead of just incar incarcerating them. And that was the, the underlying belief behind all of this. Um, and it's proved to be both ineffective um, uh, excuse me, based on the overwhelming evidence that jailing people for having small amount of drugs for right for personal use is both ineffective and counterproductive. So since then, decriminalization has been widely blamed for the increased homelessness, soaring rates of public drug use, and a 68% rise in overdose deaths rates in just its first two years. The spike was far greater than the 14% rise in the nation's overall drug deaths during the same period. Although Measure 110 passed with nearly 59% support, many Oregon voters are now calling for drugs to be recriminalized, citing these worsening conditions. The state legislature, which convened uh, last week, is considering new legislation that would, among other things, restore a criminal penalty of up to a month in jail for low-level possession. Uh, now, this is an article by uh, Maria Saslovitz um, from the New York Times that, that uh, ran back on February 5th, 2024. Um, and I would recommend pulling it because I'm not going to have time to read the whole thing. But, uh, you know, what she says here is, is very meaningful. And she goes on to say, repealing decriminalization would be a mistake. Researchers studying measure, studying measure 110's effective, uh, effects recently presented compelling evidence that the current law is extremely unlikely to have done the harm for which it is being blamed. But rampant misinformation, often spread for political gain, we know all about that, means that the legislature is likely to return to its old-school drug war approach. With overdose deaths still on the rise in other states considering decriminalization, a reversal could undo vital national progress in fighting addiction, which is far more effectively resolved with care and not coercion. If we really want Want to under, if we really want to end the overdose and homelessness crisis in Oregon and around the country, we have to understand the following evidence and not fear-mongering. And you know, she goes on to say when, evidence, when events occur in rapid succession, it's easy to assume first one caused the second one, but correlation uh, isn't all uh, that's needed to, presume, to, uh, to prove causation. Right? So, for instance, she points out, for one, people need to know that the rules have changed. In other words, people need to know that uh, in Oregon it's all been decriminalized uh, for them to be going and taking advantage of this new law, meaning that something has changed in their life, but for this new law, they never would have gone and, and, and used the drugs. Well, a survey of nearly 500 Oregonians who use stimulants, opioids, or both, only 7% that said they were aware that it was no longer a criminal offense to, to possess fentanyl. Less than half knew that methamphetamine had been decriminalized. Only 1.5% had started using drugs after Measure 110 went into effect. About 85% of survey participants were homeless or unstably housed, not a population that typically pays attention to the vagaries of legislative change. So, right, that's the first thing. You can't say that this bill uh, caused all of these problems when the people using the drugs didn't even know about the bill. They were using the drugs anyway. Uh, number two, opponents of the measure claim has attracted homeless people from around the country. Only 9% of the survey drug users had moved to Oregon in the past two years, while nearly three and four had resided there for over 11 years. Overall, homeless rates in the state have tracked with eviction policy, not decriminalization, the actual research shows. Another claim frequently made by the critics of the law is that the measure has taken a critical tool from law enforcement that could previously wield force to people into treatment, incarceration. You go to, if you don't go to treatment, you go to jail. But we now find that less than one-third of jails in the United States offer, oh, excuse me, if you go to uh, uh, car incarceration, you could get treatment. But uh, the studies have shown uh, that the jails in less than one-third uh, 
with with buprenorphine or methadone, the gold standard in treating opioid users uh, in disorder uh, in the United States, um, uh, to all could, who could benefit, and we just don't have enough. Few arrestees are ever given the chance to choose treatment instead of jail. And in prisons where nearly half of the inmates have drug problems, only 10% have access to treatment beyond self-help groups, according to Prentice Policy uh, Initiative. So why do overdose death rates rise in Oregon? Um, more than the rest of the United States immediately after the measure passed? And how can that answer help us set better policy? Well, it's all about fentanyl, says Alex Krall, a distinguished fellow in behavioral health and criminal justice in the think tank, RTI International. Illicitly manufactured fentanyl is roughly 50 times stronger than heroin. And it is fentanyl and even more powerful synthetic opioids that have driven the unprecedented rise in overall death uh, fatalities since 2013. When milder substances are suddenly replaced with drugs that are stronger by orders of magnitude, this unsurprisingly becomes the most powerful factor driving overdose deaths. Every region across the country shows a nearly identical skyrocketing death toll when fentanyl saturates its market, regardless of whether it's a tough-on-crime state like Texas or progressive bastion like California, according to uh, data presented by Dr. Uh, Brandon Del Pozo of Brown University and his colleagues, as well as previously studied research Washington State is an especially interesting example. When the state decriminalized drug possession for four months in 2021 because of a court order, overdose death rates rose most sharply after criminal penalties were restored. Further, as recently as 2018, 90% of all overdose deaths, including synthetic opioids, occurred in the 28 states east of the Mississippi. The drug and its analogs didn't overrun western states uh, and their markets until 2019 and later. And Measure 110 didn't go into effect until February 2021. Data from Oregon follows the same trends as other states where fentanyl began to spread during a similar period. So consequently, it's spurious to link decriminalization to overdose rate that has risen in parallel with fentanyl prevalence in every community study that was penetrated by drugs regardless of policy changes. So what is this saying? That people are very, very quick to judge. They fall back on their prejudices immediately. And that's why everybody's slamming the Oregon program when in fact the evidence in the studies are showing that you shouldn't be slamming the Oregon program, that we still don't know for sure. But one thing we do know is that all these other trends that people are, are attributing to Oregon are in fact uh, findings that are coming from all around the country and that Oregon is no different than any of them. And that alone should be encouraging uh, for people who question the efficacy of the program because you might expect those trends to be ridiculously higher, but they're not. Um, and so we as a society have really got to get our heads around the fact that we can't be going after any of these drugs, marijuana included, with such negative uh, misconceptions uh, and, and, and the stereotyping of people and, and all of this that are just so prevalent, it's just not the right way to go at all. Period, end of story. Go read these articles, please. The, the information that's out there on the internet is, is so plentiful and, and so obvious when you start to read it in terms of why this is all wrong and why it really is a power struggle for people who are trying to maintain power to continue to marginalize other people for any reason. And marijuana is as good a reason as any as far as those folks are concerned, even when we find all the positives of it uh, with uh, scant mention of the negatives that the rest of these people are preaching until they don't know what to say or do anymore. So there's nothing left to do with them, folks, but dive right back into great music. And we've got another one coming to you from the uh, Kaiser Convention Center back on February 12th, 1986. Wait, 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 wait,
Midnight Hour, a uh, song that everyone knows, or a lot of people know, certainly, played with the Nevilles. Phil is back on stage for this one, but it's Jerry's uh, guitar playing that I think just stands out so strongly. In the Midnight Hour is a song originally uh, performed by Wilson Pickett in 1965 and released on his 1965 album of the same name. Also appearing on the 1966 album, The Exciting Wilson Pickett, the song was composed by Pickett and Steve Cropper at the historic Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Uh, later in April of 1968, it would be the site of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, pick his first hit on Atlantic Records. It reached number one on the R&B charts and peaked at number 21 on the pop charts. He recorded in the midnight hour at, uh, at Stack Studios, Memphis, May 12, 1965. The song's co-writer, Steve Cropper, recalled that uh, Jerry Wexler said, uh, Atlantic Records uh, president, he was going to bring down this great singer, Wilson Pickett, to record at Stax, where Cropper was a session guitarist, and I didn't know what group he'd been in or whatever, but I used to work at a record shop, and I found some gospel songs that Wilson Pickett had sung on. On a couple at the end, he goes, I'll see Jesus in the midnight hour. Oh, in the midnight hour, I'll see my Jesus in the midnight hour. And Cropper got the idea of using the phrase in the midnight hour as the basis for an R&B song. More likely, Cropper was remembering the Falcons' 1962 song, I Found a Love, on which Pickett sings lead and says, and sometimes I call in the midnight hour. The only gospel record Pickett had appeared on before was the violin air's sign of judgment, which included no such phrases. Uh, but besides Cropper, the band on the midnight hour featured stack session regu regulars, Al Jackson on drums, and uh, Dan Humiston favorite Donald Duck Dunn on bass. That would be the Donald Duck Dunn uh, later of Blues Brothers fame uh, for those who go down that road and uh, uh, always like listening to him play. Uh, Pickett re-recorded the song for his 1987 album, American Soul Man. In the Midnight Hour has become an iconic uh, rhythm and blues track, placing it number 134 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Pickett's first of two entries on the list, the other one being Mustang Sally, another really well-known tune at number uh, 434. It's also one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shape rock and roll, his uh, only such entry. In 2017, the song was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally historical or artistically significant. In 1999, in the registry by the Library of Congress, oh, excuse me, in 1999, in the midnight hour, uh, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It's been covered by Bruce Springsteen uh, on his live set list beginning in 1969. A notable performance of the song took place in the minutes preceding midnight during the night, uh, December 31, 1980 performance at Nassau Coliseum by Springsteen and his East, East Street Band on their The River Tour. The show was later released as part of the official Springsteen Live Archives and is regarded by many Springsteen fans as one of the marquee concerts of his career. Also covered by the Young Rascals, Roxy Music. Uh, it was highlighted in the film The Commitments in 1991. Tina Turner recorded it and many more. The Grateful Dead uh, regularly performed the song in concert from 1967 onwards, most notably with extended improv vocals by Pigpen uh, during the period of time when he was with the band. It was occasionally the Dead's Midnight song at their New Year's Eve show. I saw him do it in 1985 at midnight on the 31st. Always a fun way to start the new year, although I was always partial to them playing Sugar Magnolia at uh, midnight. So the Dead played it a total of 57 times. Uh, we said the first was on December 10th, 1965 at the Fillmore in San Francisco. The last was October 17th, 1994 at Madison Square Garden in New York City. And uh, uh, we have now come to the end of our show. We ran a little bit long today, but we had some great music here to talk about. Had some really, really good marijuana stuff to talk about. And I hope people's taken all that information uh, for the positives it is that really stand behind uh, where marijuana is going and 
uh, how thankful we should be uh, to be existing in this time uh, when it is legal uh, in some places and when all of these discoveries are being made and, and hopefully that will just continue. On the way out, I'm going to leave you with Johnny Be Good. It's not the, the encore. Uh, that's U.S. Blues and it happens to be a really strong U.S. Blues. But Johnny Be Good, we still have the Nevels playing. And uh, so I really wanted to capture one more song with them. This was the final song of the second set. Um, and, and I know, like I said, we just, we just featured it. But this version demands really recognition. Again, uh, you got the mashup of the Dead and, and the uh, Nevels. Uh, singers, the whole thing is just great. Um, but uh, it's just a ripping version. Uh, so we had to go with this one. And uh, it is a Chuck Berry tune. The Dead played Johnny B. Good 283 times. First on September 7th, 69 at the Family Dog at the Great Highway in San Francisco. Last on April 595 at the Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center Coliseum in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Have a great weekend or week. Uh, right, we already had the Super Bowl. So I hope you had a good time watching the Super Bowl and uh, that you enjoy yourself. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.